Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today is another special episode. We're going to be talking about fictional characters, whether they exist, how we can think about them, like what's their ontology, how can we even speak about these things, uh, like Bilbo Baggins or like uh, Thanos from Infinity War. Wore this shirt just for this podcast, just for you guys who are watching on YouTube. Um, if you're listening along, oh, well, you missed it. But I have with me, uh, again, Dr. Mark Sainsbury, and we're going to be covering one of his books, another one of his books, Fiction and Fictionalism, which is in the Rutledge New Problems of Philosophy or New Problems in Philosophy series. And uh, I've had a, a few guests on from that series already looking to do the whole thing. Uh, Rutledge, hit me up. Let's do some sponsorship. Send me some books, something. Uh, but yeah, I want to go through the whole thing, whether uh, they sponsor me or not. Speaking of sponsors, I want to thank everyone over at Patreon who is supporting the podcast uh, financially. That's huge. You guys are awesome. Uh, if you have benefited from this podcast, please consider joining my, my Patreon team. Become a patron. You can find the link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. Another way to support it is uh, the podcast, that is, is to go to YouTube. And uh, leave me some comments. I want to hear your thoughts. That actually helps the algorithm. Uh, you can leave me a thumbs up, subscribe, turn on the notification bell. All that stuff actually helps the uh, YouTube algorithm stuff. And then a uh, third way is to go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and another comment. That'd go a long way. That'd be huge uh, if you benefited from the podcast. Thanks, guys. Um, so let's just jump right in to fiction and fictionalism. I've been thinking about this one. Uh, I told Mark I'm a little bit nervous about it because there's so much at play here, but he does a fantastic job of thinking th through this stuff for me. So uh, let's let's bring him in. Mark, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Parker. I'll do my best. <laughs> All right, let's do this. So, um, so uh, Quine uh, has this famous essay uh, on what there is. Is that is that the right name of it? It is. Okay. Right. And so that's famous. Uh, we're going through that in this metaphysics metaphysics class I'm in. Uh, and he talks about Pegasus. But I knew you like unicorns and you used a unicorn on uh, thinking about things. So I was thinking about this and I thought, well, Pegasus uh, isn't a unicorn. And that seems like a true statement. And yes. yet both of those things are fictional things. And so it's true but in a sense, I guess it's it's not true because, um, as Peter Strassen said, I, I can't spill coffee on them. I can't spill coffee on Pegasus or a unicorn. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. But as we jump in, um, like, what are we about to embark on here? Is this uh, is this metaphysics? Is this philosophy of language, semantics, epistemology? What what area are we even going to be in? 
Well, I think all these things are involved. So one of the things you just said was that Pegasus is not a unicorn, it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we've got a truth, then we take it that in some way or other, the world makes it true. Yeah. So truth leads you pretty quickly into metaphysics. Mm-hmm. But it also, of course, involves semantics, because if we want to understand the mechanisms whereby a sentence is true, we need to understand the semantic properties of the parts of the sentence. Yeah. So we get both of those. And then I don't know if you mentioned epistemology, but that must come into it too, because somehow or other we know that Pegasus is not a unicorn. And where does right. that knowledge come from? Or is it genuine knowledge? Perhaps it's mere hearsay or something of that kind. So yeah. I think uh, the question we're looking at today involves sort of all, the, all the standard branches of philosophy, uh, we might even bring moral philosophy into it because um, some people regard morality as a species of fiction. Yeah. Those are the fictionalists. Um, so, uh, yeah, n- no boundaries here, I think. <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's my favorite type of thing uh, to think about because it, well, I think a lot of things in philosophy actually turn out to be that way and we need all the subdisciplines. And I, I love that. I think it's uh, super fascinating. What, uh, what got you interested in fiction and fictionalism in the first place? How did you uh, come to, to write this book? Well, fiction does raise this, um, these problems about reference, which, are, which was the topic I'd previously written about in, in the book called Reference Without Reference. Hmm. One of the <clears throat> long-standing concerns I've had in philosophy is with the assumption, which I reject, that meaning involves referring and then if you're referring, you need to be referring to something. And this is a very common assumption that um, goes back a long way, I mean, east of the Middle Ages. And Russell, for example, in the, in the early 20th century was very, um, it was a view he adopted without any particular argument. He just thought that's how things had to be. Um, but I think the view that, refer- that uh, meaning involves reference is mistaken. So I think we can perfectly, perfectly well have meaningful statements and meaningful words which don't refer to anything. And the example you've just given, Pegasus is not a unicorn, seems to me to establish that my view about that is correct. But um, even if you think that, you've got a lot of problems ahead of you because you've got to explain, well, how is meaning possible? If it doesn't involve reference, what sort of thing is it? And then you've got problems to explain how the kind of meaning that you then want to focus on, the meaning of words like Pegasus and Unicorn, how those engage with whether statements are true or false. So you start off with a, I started off at any rate with a purely semantic problem. Then I got into this question of um, uh, fictional uh, entities, if there are any, because fictional names are among the most conspicuous examples of words that many people would agree are meaningful. And many people would think don't have um, reference. Yeah, so so many things just uh, came up in my head here. So I've been thinking a lot about semantic externalism because of um, Brain and Avat scenarios and, and Putnam. So um, uh, you're not a semantic externalist, right? So that's exactly what you just said. That we we don't need. Well, your book titled "Reference Without Reference" with a T. Uh, we don't need. So like the exact opposite of, of Putnam's semantic externalism. Is that right? Uh, not, 
I'm not actually quite sure about that. So okay. um, one way one way to define well maybe maybe it'd be good to have a distinction between two kinds of semantic externalism. Okay. Um, what might one call it environmental semantic externalism, and that okay. is the kind of semantic externalism which Putnam tried to persuade us of with the Twin Earth examples. Mm -hmm. So Putnam's example for this environmental externalism was this. Imagine a world just like our Earth or a planet just like our planet. Um, and it's really, to look at, it's indistinguishable from Earth as we know it. And in particular, there's a clear liquid that fills the oceans and falls from the sky as rain and so on. The only thing is that um, this liquid is composed of XYZ molecule right. rather than H2O. Now, the inhabitants of Twin Earth use a word that sounds just like our word water to refer to XYZ. And Putnam's claim was that although everything superficially seems the same, XYZ is not water because it's not H2O. Mm -hmm. And hence, the inhabitants of the XYZ world have a different language from our language, even though it seems on the, on the surface it seems the same. They use the word water. Their pattern of use is, in a sense, uh, a mirror of our pattern of use. But they refer to something different. So this different reference is created externally. It's created by the environment, the environmental difference between Twin Earth and our Earth. So that's one form of externalism. Actually, I have no quarrel with that. I think okay. a different environment could create different meanings, just as Putnam said. So I think there's certainly room for environmental externalism. Okay. And then Tyler Birch has uh, described what he calls social externalism, which mm -hmm. means our linguistic community, which linguistic community we're in, may affect what we actually mean or what, what the words in our mouth mean. So his example is that um, in in our world, if we uh, go to the doctor and complain of having arthritis in the thigh, the doctor says, well, I'm sorry you've got a pain in your thigh, but it can't be arthritis because arthritis is um, an inflammation of the joints. And Bird says, so that seems the right thing to tell for, that seems the right story to tell for our society. But now imagine a society in which the word arthritis was used in a different way. It was used for any um, pain or arthritis, as what we would call arthritis-like pain. Um, and in that case, even if our individual who goes to his doctor and says, I've got arthritis in the, in, the, in the thigh, even if he seems to be just a duplicate of the actual person we originally envisaged, is actually saying something different. They're saying what we, in our language, would say, I've got an arthritis-like pain mm -hmm. in my thigh, because that's what the word in, their society, in that society means. So again, I've got no quarrel with that kind of externalism. So I think um, by externalism, you were thinking of something rather different mm. in the view that um, meaning is reference, which is a, you know, it's a view that you find pretty explicitly in, in people like Russell, and which is often assumed even in writings of, of our time, of, you know, of, the, of the century we're in. Mm. We find people just taking that for granted. 
one way it emerges in current writing is that people often talk of propositions regarded as um, structures of individual objects and properties. Now, if there are words which have meaning without reference, then they don't express propositions. So if you think propositions are the, the key thing to um, do semantics with, then you're going to miss out on words who have meaning that have meaning without reference, assuming there are any such things. So even today, there's a sort of there's a sort of built-in animus against um, the idea of meaning with a, meaning without reference. Yeah, well, that was so helpful, and and uh, it also helps me think uh, about Davidson's externalism, which is like a social and environmental by way of his, his triangulation argument, which I love. Uh, we talked about that before. Um, so, yeah, that's really, really helpful. Um, thanks for, for clearing that up for me. So so moving on into, into fiction and going e- even deeper down the rabbit hole, uh, first things first, like what what is fiction? Well, that's rather a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I take it it's the product of a work of fiction is the product of a certain kind of human activity. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be, you know, a, a play or perhaps a poem. I don't know, poems seem perhaps borderline or poems perhaps differ. Some are clearly fiction and some are something else. Yeah. Um, or a novel or a short story or whatever. And so what is the crucial feature that's going on? They don't claim to be presenting the world as it is. They um, present themselves as an exercise in imagination. And they invite the consumer, typically the reader or the theatre-goer, to exercise their imagination, to think about this, not as this is how the world is, but this is a possible situation that it's interesting to think about and to react to emotionally. Yeah, that's that's helpful. So uh, another thing that you mentioned in the book was uh, two people could you know, possibly come up with the same exact uh, fiction using the same words. Uh, there's a, there's a real man. I, I forgot who the author is, but they give a really short story, a really sad story in like five words or something, baby shoes for sale, never used something like that. So six, um, someone else could come up with that same story uh, unbeknownst to them. And you, you, you talked about the intentions the, the fictive utterances and, and the intentions behind it. So if both authors had, and the intention to create a story, then we will we count those as two stories? I can't remember how you parse that. Well, I think that would be reasonable, yes. So yeah. I'm taking it that this isn't a case of um, someone just copying. Something. Right. I mean, they just came up with it independently. Yeah. I think, um, didn't Borges uh, have an example of this kind? Um, I can't quite remember sure. it. I can yeah. The details sometime. Um, but yes, so I think we've got two stories because uh, we've got two authors. Yeah. Um, and they each wrote, the stories happen to coincide. So they're, there's a, they're of the same story kind, as it were, but they're yeah. two different stories of that, of that kind. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if this is the best spot to do it or not. If it's not, just say no and we'll get back to it later. But uh, where... In that case, you have two different authors with two different uh, intentions, but they're telling the same story, um, and yet it's two different stories. Where does that story 
exist? Um, well, um, <laughs> you could answer that in different ways. So yeah. you could think of the story as an abstract object, which seems uh -huh. quite reasonable okay. to me. And then it could be um, sung on different occasions, if it's you know, a story from troubadours or something like that. Or it could be printed in different in different texts, and so there'd be, you know, your copy of Anna Karenina and my copy of Anna Karenina. So there'd be two tokens of the same story. In the case you've been describing, I think we want different stories just because we've got different authors. So, right. um, you know, the, these stories are different because they have different properties. So it's just Leibniz's law that um, um, things which differ in their properties have to be different things. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think one's just applying a quite general principle for the case you you mentioned. Um, but the more the more difficult issues are, you know, how we how we get the abstract and the concrete to mm -hmm. get related, because we want to think of the different copies of Anna Karenina as, as different. I mean, they're different somethings, but they're not really different stories. So the stories have the identification of the story has to be at a more abstract level than the physical. Um, embodiment of them in texts. Yeah. So that's that's where my trouble comes in, uh, and, and we're getting into realism about fictional characters uh, right now. So my confusion is if if uh, if these these authors wrote this story, and the story is an ad abstract object, which which I I also think is reasonable. Uh, like you said, the the connection there or exemplification, however we want to want to say that, it, it's tricky. Like, if it's an abstract object, then it's not in in time and space. So, did they did this author discover this story uh, in the abstract realm? Even the way I'm saying it is not very helpful. But did he discover this story or did he create the story? I, I just having a hard time thinking through the abstract concept so, there. I think it has to be a creation. And you shouldn't okay. get too worried because okay. if you enter into a con contract, a yeah. contract is an abstract entity, but you create it. Um, yes. Or the two of you, or if there are two parties to the contract, and between you, you create this abstract thing, which lives on, may live, may well live on beyond your, beyond the lives of the creators. So that's a, a familiar abstraction, which we don't, on the whole, Unless we're very philosophical, we don't feel too many qualms about recognizing uh, marriages and contracts and yeah. um, games and so on. And we, these abstract objects are actually very familiar inhabitants of our everyday life. So I think we can add stories and novels and plays to these without uh, feeling we're going, going into some crazy, strange metaphysical territory. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so as we um, I'm thinking of of like Austin and, and speech acts, and you pronounce someone husband and wife, or you create a story and you you write it and it's completed. Did since you created that or performed that prolocutionary act and, and all that good stuff, did you add um, an abstract object to the world of abstracta? Yes. Okay. So it's creative. Yeah, it's creative. Okay. Is that is there like a a timestamp on that? Is that like a do abstract ob, do abstract objects have uh yeah, like T1 or when, whenever? 
Yeah, so that's an important point. So many people think of abstract objects in, a, in the way Plato did, right. which abstract objects are eternal. Um, well, that won't do for the sorts of things we're talking about now, contracts, yeah. fictions, and things. These are abstract objects which um, have a beginning in time, yeah. and they may well have an end in time too. So a contract may be set to expire on a certain day, and then yeah. it no longer exists. That, con that contract's life, even though it's an abstraction, has come to an end. And even the stories, one might, one might think that, you know, if all the copies are destroyed and everyone's forgotten about it, one might say, well, that story no longer exists. Mm. Of course, with, with fictions, it's pretty easy to date the initiation of the fiction. Or, well, of course, it may take a while to write a book, so right. you go a little, little bit arbitrary about that. But um, start is easier to see what's going on. Um, for a, a fiction to end, that needs some rather, you know, some rather, rather perhaps rather pointless sort of uh, dressing up in terms of everyone having forgotten it or something. Yeah. Okay. So, so you just, it's so interesting. Uh, so Sherlock Holmes uh, is someone that you use in this book, and you have this Holmes um, sentence that Sherlock Holmes lived on, uh, you know, Baker Street. Um, when Sherlock died at the Reichenbach fall, uh, did that did the concept die? Like he, we still all had, everyone still had the concept of him. So he didn't die; he still existed, even though he died. What, what do you make of that? False. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So when you say Holmes died, you're speaking from within the stories. Yes. Um, because since Holmes didn't exist, he was neither born nor he died in any sense of reality. So you're speaking within the stories. Um, and so within the stories, he does exist. Even though he, you know, he's, he, it's true that he died, but that doesn't make him go out of existence. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so let's get into to realism about fictional characters then before we spoil anything. Um, it's just so awesome. I, I love this stuff. So why would, well, what is realism about fictional characters? And then why would anyone be uh, a realist concerning them? Well, realism about fictional characters is the view that fictional characters are part of our reality. So um, you can't really express the view just by saying there are such things as fictional characters, you've got to say something which shows that um, because everyone it's um, on the natural way of understanding that sentence there are fictional characters, everyone's going to agree that there are. So to get the difference going, you've got to say something like they belong to our reality uh, our reality, the one that you and I share mm -hmm. Now why would anyone think that? Well, um, I think it's partly because they're, they're puzzled by certain kinds of reactions we have to certain sentences. So, for example, we, we want to say, uh, to, you, to use the example you mentioned, Holmes lived in Baker Street. We want to count that as true. So many people think that it can't be true unless, and we want to count it as, as really true in some sense. Um, and people think it couldn't be really true unless Holmes really existed. So that's one line of thought. So that's what I call literalism. So you, you, you take these sentences literally and you apply the ordinary methods of uh, what, what, what's required for a sentence like that to be true. So that's one, one dimension. Personally, I think that's very feeble, um, you know, very 
unconvincing. Yeah. But there's a, there's a more convincing. If I were going to try to be a realist, this is what I'd focus on. I'd, I'd focus on, what, on things like Conan Doyle created Sherlock Holmes. Now, we seem to have a straightforward relational sentence, which can't be true unless there are two relata. Yeah. There's Conan Doyle on the one hand and Sherlock Holmes on the other. So we want this to be straightforwardly true. Conan Doyle is part of our reality. So if he did any creating, the product of his creation is in our reality too. So Sherlock Holmes belongs to our reality. So for me, that's quite a powerful argument. I don't accept it, but um, I think that's, for, for me, that's, that's the best kind of case to look at if you want to be a realist. Okay. Uh, it's so hard for me not to jump ahead, but so, so maybe I will. Um, you, you made this interesting point. So we're going to get into presuppositions and how we can use those to distinguish uh, between what's, what the reference is or what world we're talking about. But you, you made this interesting point about um, the order of the sentence. And so uh, if, if Holmes has coffee with uh, Conan Doyle, uh, that might be true or, or might be more easily taken to be true because you're thinking maybe in the fictional world because you put Holmes first. But if you said Conan Doyle had tea or coffee with Holmes, then you might say, well, no, that's more intuitively more obviously false because the first word of the sentence tends to set the, the relevant presuppositions. I, I'd never thought of that until you said that. And it's so interesting. Can you Explain, like, why, why is that? Why do we have that intuition? Um, well, I think we have it because uh, the first phrase in a sentence tends to set the presuppositions for the rest of the sentence. Mm -hmm. So there's a nice example from Donald. I think it's Donald's example. Um, so compare um, the king of France is the goat. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Russell, as we know, used the phrase the King of France as an example of a phrase that was meaningful but didn't have any reference. And yeah. he thought he could explain that in terms of its semantic complexity. Um, but if we turn that one around, so, um, but nobody thinks that's true. I mean, every, I mean, nobody in their right minds would think that the King of France had tea, or, or sorry, well, we, we aren't having tea. But, um, the King of France is to go. Nobody would ever think that. Uh, one, one, one can't even really make sense of it. But if you turn it round, you get something pretty different, namely de Gaulle is the King of France. What you want to say about that is, oh, no, that's just not true. Whereas with the King of France is to go, you say, you know, what are you talking about? There isn't a King of France. I can't even digest that sentence. But de Gaulle is the King of France, and that just seems clearly wrong. Yeah. And that's because de Gaulle is a real person who has set the framework for um, de Gaulle as King of France to reality. And then the King of France is de Gaulle sets the framework to nothing because yeah. King of France, no such thing. We don't know, you know, we, we, our um, powers of digesting what comes next have been um, forestalled uh, we're not in a position to interpret the sentence in a sensible way once it started that way. Yeah, that that's helpful. I think of of Boss van Frossen's uh, work following Strassen, 
on he he would say that I think the first one is a failure of presupposition that uh, it's the sentence is neither true nor false because the presupposition its presupposition has failed and so are you are you saying the same thing as that or would you want to want to balk at the idea of a failure of presupposition? I was just sort of avoiding the somewhat technical language, but yeah. Okay. So putting it in, in, in a standard, rather technical way, um, the um, first noun phrase in a sentence tends to set the presuppositions that are meant to be in play when the rest of the sentence is interpreted. Okay. Um, and if those presuppositions fail, then the rest of the sentence can't be interpreted. Yeah. So with um, the goal is blah, 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 that sets the presuppositions to reality. Yeah. Things really are. So if we get something like the King of France after that, we can just say, okay, you know, that's, that's, that's wrong. That's not how reality is. Um, but if we've got the King of France is blah, 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 then our presuppositions don't really get set properly because, you know, there isn't a story that we, we can invoke about the King of France and there isn't a King of France, so we can't do that. So we're somewhat at a loss to, un- to interpret what comes next. So one way to express that being at a loss is it's neither true nor false. Okay. Yeah. So that's, um, I don't want to stick here too long, uh, but that, that one freaks me out a little bit too. Does, if it's neither true nor false, um, if we said it's like, it's like nonsense, um, that makes sense to me. But what I think Van Frossen says, now we have a, a failure of, of bivalence and, and maybe we're into like subclassical logics. Do you, do you, what do you make of the the sentence that starts with the King of France? Um, is it did it just ruin classical logics for us, or or um, and it, is that no big deal? Um, I think ruining classical logic would be a big deal. Um, <laughs> so, <no one's, laughs> That's good. Um, but of course, how you deal with these these matters? I mean, to some extent, there's there's room for choice here. It's uh, it's um, it's not as if if we could peer into the sort of depths of logical reality we'd find the answer (laughs) we must just make sensible decisions so i'm happy to go with russell's view and just say it's uh, the king of france is to go is just false Um, that's my personal view so we don't have a failure of bivalence okay but but there are certainly other options and and as i say i think to some extent it's um just a matter of um you know, not excogitating some deep logical reality which you have to um, put on your logical searchlight to explore. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of making a sensible decision that's going to be convenient for your logical purposes. That's that's a, a more helpful way to think about it <laughs> than uh, destroying uh, logical reality, uh, which I thought was at stake. So that that's, again, that's really helpful. Um so you've talked about uh, well in the in the book you argue that there's no justification for for realism concerning uh, fictional characters, and then you, you said that this is somewhat of a radical uh, thesis. Uh, why? Look, when I read that, I'm like, okay, I'm following what you say. I, I trust what you say, anyways. But why might someone view your um, your believing there's no justification for realism here? Why would anyone think that's that's um, radical? Why is it radical? Well, um, some notable people have taken opposite views. So okay. 
principal person is Saul Kripke, who is very notable indeed. Yeah. Um, and he said that in order to understand the kind of creative sentences, you know, the ones where you're talking about the about the fiction, you need to regard the fictional names in that context as having reference to abstract objects. And um, it's it's been, I mean, that view has been worked out, you know, by very serious thinkers. Um, so there's um, uh, Amy Thomason is someone who comes to mind, who's thought long and hard and very interestingly about fiction. And she takes the view that you need to be some sort of realist. And um, Peter Van Inwagen argued for that view a, a long time ago and um, has maintained that opinion. He's another very distinguished philosopher. So it's it's only I mean it's only radical in that other not everyone I mean lots of distinguished people don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I I don't know a bunch about. Um about David Lewis yet. There's so many Lewises to, to get, but I know he's a big one and I'm, I'm working on that. I'm getting into his stuff more. Uh, is is uh, Kripke and Lewis, or are they going to be really similar here? I know Lewis, uh, people just tease him or, or whatever for having just this huge ballooned up ontology. Uh, is there, when it comes to Kripke and, and Lewis here, are they in lockstep with thinking uh about the actual existence of, of fictional characters? Uh, let me, that's quite a difficult, quite a difficult question. Um, so, so, uh, so I, I'm not absolutely certain, but I think Lewis would think the following, that um, fictional characters are possibilia. Okay. They're possible things. And then he's very... Um, he thinks lots of possible things exist. So he'd say fictional characters exist, and he'd do that in a kind of across-the-board um, um, style. Um, he'd just say that uh, a fiction, I take it, he'd say. He didn't address, as far as I'm aware, he didn't address exactly this question, but only nearby ones. But uh, a fiction tells um, a story... Uh, in which a world is represented. Yeah. And he ha I know he had an issue that there are impossible fictions, fictions which tell impossible stories. Mm -hmm. And he says we have to think of those as um, more than one fiction cobbled together, each one being possible. Okay. So, that, so, he, had, so he did address that question of um, how we could make sense of uh, fictional characters being possible individuals even though some fictions have impo make impossible claims like many people think time travel is impossible and so right story of time travel would be an impossible story so um that was something he focused on and he also focused on something that Kripke, as far as i'm aware but i may be wrong didn't have much to say about which was understanding phrases like um according to the fiction according to such and such a picture so and so and Lewis's paper called Truth in Fiction, which I think you would really enjoy, is um, devoted to analyzing that in possible worlds terms. So yeah. according to the fiction, such and such is analyzed by Lewis as in every world in which the fiction is told as known fact, such and such. So that's, that's his view. Now, quickly, as far as I know, didn't address 
exactly those problems. So he addressed the narrow problem of the semantics of fictional names. And um, I haven't actually read what he said recently, and I hope my memory isn't too far off. Yeah. But um, I think he thinks that the reference of fictional names varies according to the context. So when they're actually being used in the story, they don't have a reference. They don't refer to anything. Maybe we pretend they refer to something, but they don't really refer to anything. But when we're speaking outside the fiction, we're talking about who created Sherlock Holmes or whatever, then they do refer, and it's to an abstract object. Okay. So I don't think... So I think I think their views are fairly different, despite their having been colleagues at one stage. Okay, yeah, that's that's really interesting. <clears throat> uh, but Mark, you you would say, I, I believe maybe not. Would you say that a name a name can have meaning even if it doesn't have a bearer, right? Yeah. yeah okay. That's crucial for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, okay. So if you deny. If you deny realism concerning, I actually don't know if this is a, a real word. A fictionalia is that? I know, is that a real word? I'll, 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 I'll roll with it. <laughs> all right, all right. So if you deny realism concerning fictionalia, um, does that make you like a, a fictionalia anti-realist or a nominalist or irrealist fictionalist? Uh, like, what's the word? How do we describe you? I guess. Well, irrealist is the word I actually use in the book. Irrealist. Okay. But fictional characters form any part of our reality. So yeah. they're not real or irreal. Um, yeah. Irrealist. Okay. And, but so um, just to be clear, so a contract is an abstract um, object. It's a real abstract object. Real ab abstract, but fictional characters are not uh, real abstract objects. Uh, no, they're not anything. Right. Right. Um, and that has to do with the uh, fictive uh, expression, fictive sentence, uh, the intentionality behind the two different actions of creating a fictional character versus creating a, a contract. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, so the yes. This is, so um, when an abstract thing is brought into being, um, its nature is determined by the intentions and so on behind the creative act. So if I'm creating, say, a purchase contract, I'm going to have completely different intentions than if I'm creating a, a character in a novel or yeah. if I'm uh, creating a marriage contract or something, intentions will be very different. Yeah. That's that's great. I like that a lot. And uh, I grabbed a, a quote from either your essay, um, of course, there are fictional objects or, or um, I, of course, I, I keep calling it, of course, I don't remember the full title. Uh, if you remember, you could of tell course, fictional characters. characters. Okay, yeah, great. Fictional characters. Yeah. And then uh, I don't know if, if it's from that essay or from fiction and fictionalism, but you say fictional maybe an intentional operator, intentional with an S operator, with a wide scope, which deprives the quantifier of its usual force. And so that's the difference that, that fictional is a special case. Um, and so if you have this fictional utterances, fictional intentionality, that, that's gonna, that, that may well deprive the intentional uh, operator, uh, uh, deprive the... <laughs> quantifier of its usual force, whereas it doesn't deprive it of that force in, in different uh, elocution, I guess? Well, 
okay, so um, let's start with the phrase in the fiction. Okay. So, um, in fiction, perhaps. In fiction, there are unicorns. So we all think that's true. But there are unicorns, we all think it's false. Yes. So if you, if you stick in fiction in front of something, you can turn a falsehood into a truth. Mm. Um, and um, you can do this in more elaborate ways. So in the fiction, Sherlock Holmes played the violin. True. But Sherlock Holmes played the violin. Well, I say not true. Yeah. Um, so in the fiction can um, provide a, a setting in which what would otherwise not be true is true. So now let's think of the adjective fictional. So we've got, so I say, of course, there are fictional characters. So I wish to point out that fictional is closely related in its meaning, obviously, to in the, in the fiction. So when we say, of course, there are fictional characters, it seems to me this could be par paraphrased as, well, there are fictions, according to which, in, in these fictions, there are characters. Right. Um, and um, so this is how it can be true without requiring fictional characters to form part of our reality, just as in the in the fiction there are unicorns can be true without unicorns being part of our reality yeah. so there are fictional unicorns can be true without unicorns being part of our reality and more generally there are fictional characters can be true without those characters being part of our reality yeah okay and and that it's so funny that um your contention seems so right and so commonsensical uh, but it takes all this work to actually flesh them out and, and say, here's what we mean and here's how we're getting down to it. Um, is there, do we need to be um, explicit in saying in the fiction beforehand? Or if I if I were to say to someone, hey, Bilbo Baggins is short, um, there's like an, uh, a non-explicit or implicit understanding in this conversation that I'm I'm referring, my presuppositions are uh, referring to the fictional world, which... That's Okay. Okay. So, doesn't we don't have to be pedantic and, and explicit? No, and <clears throat> pedantic and explicit is rather rare and indeed rather boring in ordinary right. conversation. So, this is why if you um, stopped a hundred people in the street and said, "Tell me," um, uh, I'm not sure if I can do your get your example exactly right. So, I'll stick with my own. Yeah. Um, Holmes is a detective. Um, everyone's going to say, "Yeah, right." Why are you? bothering to tell me. And that's because the presupposition will be very automatically triggered. It would not be triggered for um, a less well-known work of fiction. So yeah. whether presuppositions get triggered or not is a social issue. It's not, it's not a question of the semantics as such. Okay. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful. So um, when it comes to, to names and reference and I, I, I want to go back to content externalism, maybe to like the peril of our conversation. I really hope it's not and doesn't derail us. But uh, so Putnam would say you can't like successfully refer to something that you don't have a causal history with. And that's the environmental uh, externalism. Yes. So 
I don't have a causal history with anyone named Sherlock Holmes, but I can know that Holmes was a detective. Um, can is is there an apparent problem? Do you see where I'm going with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's a problem for the causal theory of reference. Yeah. So you can, uh, uh, unfortunately, you can't, and sadly, you can't ask Putnam anymore. But um, yeah. still, the thing, the question, that's a perfectly good question to ask a causal externalist, um, yeah. uh, someone who thinks that reference is essentially causal. Yeah. Uh, it looks if you can refer to things that don't have any causal powers. And the same is true for numbers. It's, uh, it's not just fictional names, but also names of numbers. They don't have causal powers. We have no trouble referring to them. So the causal theory of reference, I and mean, there's some insight there that's important, but just sort of cranking it out as you can only refer to things you're in causal contact with is just incorrect. Yeah. So um, Putnam said, you know, meanings just ain't in the head. Um, where where are meanings? Uh, because you, I, they're not what Putnam said. Uh, I don't. I don't think. Otherwise, we got this weird problem with with Holmes and referring and stuff like that. So where? Yeah. Where are meanings? I guess. Well, I don't think there are any meanings. I mean, okay. You know, they're not entities, so they don't have places. You can't ask where they are. <laughs> okay. Um, so um, we can distinguish between meaningful and meaningless expressions. Mm -hmm. uh, we can answer questions like, what does this expression mean? We can give the meaning, uh, but that's rather a particular phrase. So it's not as if there's something I could hand you and say, look, here it is. <laughs> right. So, so meanings... Um, not everyone agrees with this, but um, anyway, I think meanings are not entities. Okay. I think I wrote a paper with that title at one point. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Um, so, so we withdraw um, the withdrawal of presuppositions. It sounds so technical, um, and and you you brought this out in the book, but. Um, is the withdrawal of presuppositions, if I'm getting this right, I think it's just you walk up to someone on the street and say, hey, well, was Sherlock Holmes a detective? And they go, yes, of course. And you go, aha, you've just quantified over uh, Sherlock Holmes, and, and now you think he's a real person. You can go and spill coffee on him. And they go, no, 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 no. I meant, you know, according to the story. Is that what you mean by by um, uh, with withdrawing presuppositions? Um. Maybe I'm grabbing that from an obscure place in the book, actually. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, the phrase doesn't um, ring bells straight away. But um, certainly presuppositions can be manipulated and changed okay. um, <clears throat> deliberately or accidentally. Um, so, um, you know, supposing we, supposing we have been hired to, by a bank to figure out whether it's secure. So we make various... Um, we, we consider how villains might um, attack the bank. Yeah. And um, so we're, we're presupposing that that's our activity. And we say, well, we'll go in through the culverts. So we really mean it, but that's sort of way, we, um, I mean, that's what we meant to say, and that's what we want to consider. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in that context, we're not asserting that 
Um, so when we're, what we're doing is presupposing that we're engaged in this very specialized form of activity, yeah. namely rehearsing a, a possible activity which we ourselves would never in, dream of engaging in. And it's, yeah. it's hard even to state exactly what's going on here. So anyway, so presupposition can take that very complex form. Um, in 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 other cases, it's um, much more straightforward. So, um, if I say if I say now um, <clears throat> I'm going to I'm, I'm I'm going to work, um, practically anyone in my environment who heard me would think that I was saying that I was going into the University of Texas campus. Mm-hmm. But of course, that, that isn't what I've literally said. And those same words could be said in quite other contexts, in which case they wouldn't be interpreted in that way. So presupposition is, is not to be feared or anything. It's omnipresent. And I mean, one of the things that's not clear is whether we can actually say anything that doesn't have some sort of presupposition that um, if you manage to manipulate it and change it, would actually make the words we uttered have a completely different effect. Right. So I don't know if there's really any presupposition-free speech. Well, I well, think I you're think right. You're right. Uh, um, um, Husserl, Husserl is, is, you know, rolling no, no, in his grave, no, no, no. I think, um, because he wanted to get to this, you know, presuppositional less uh, place. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right about the the role and the necessity of, of presuppositions, especially in, in interpretation. Um, I wanted to move to thinking about Quine um, and back to his essay, you know, on what there is. And in this essay, he he. He's got these two fictional, uh, which is actually really interesting, two fictional philosophers, though they do kind of have a referent in reality, uh, J.M.E. McTaggart and Alexis. I don't actually, it's, it's Maynong. Is, is, I'd never, Maynong. I've never said it out loud before. I see his name all, all the time. Um, and, and he calls him Wyman and McTaggart McX. Um, so the, the Maynong view is that there are, real things there are, there are things that don't exist right yeah. yes okay and that um in comparison with the david lewis uh that, that we discussed earlier lewis would say there things that don't exist are possibilia and possibilia do exist in like a a, a possible world right so lewis would say everything exists ah okay not everything is actual okay so in that sense, is he a, a Minongian? Oh, no, not at all. He would uh, turn in his grave at the thought. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, but, but he, what, he, what he is not is an actualist. So yeah. Some people, myself included, think that everything there is is actual. Yes. Lewis thought there are a whole ton of non-actual things that exist in just the same sense and with just the same degree of reality as the actual things. It's just that they're non-actual. So that is a very striking metaphysical view, but it's not Meinong's view. Okay, yeah, that's, that was my confusion, because I, I thought Meinong would say there's things that are that don't exist as well. He does say that. But, but Lewis, isn't that what Lewis says? Well, Lewis says that um, everything exists, but not everything is actual. Ah. Some things are non-actual. So I'm not sure. I mean, my non-excuses is rather difficult, and I okay. hesitate to say. Sure. But from what I've read, my non doesn't go in for 
he's not really interested in these modal questions. questions ah. Um, what Meinong was interested in, he, I think he got this from Brentano, <clears throat> in intentionality, which is, of course, what I'm interested in too, which is, the, um, and you might put it this way, it's the power of thought to be able to think of non-existent things like unicorns. Yeah. So then he took that, I mean, he took that and ran with it in one direction. And, of course, there's a sense in which I believe that we can think of non-existent things. It's just that I don't, uh, I don't give the non-existent things the kind of reality that my mom gives them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that. I, I, your view, as I'm as I'm trying to wrap my head around it more and more, it just it seems it's got the ring of truth to me. Uh, so I, I want to wrap my head even more. Can you lay out like? Um, but I know you you go through a lot of challenges for for a Minongian uh, view. Can you lay out just a, a couple? Why should why should the listener not be a, a Minongian? Why should we not be a Minongian? Um, yes, I, I certainly ought to be able to respond to this. Let's see if I can. <laughs> um, I could tell you, I think I, I'm going to duck the question slightly because I <laughs> right. for a while, but I can tell you how Russell responded. He thought that my onionism would lead you to contradiction because mm-hmm. you have to allow that there were round squares. Um, they wouldn't, um, so let me see if I can get this right. They don't, they have so sign, I think it is, being thus and so, so they have properties, but they don't have being, so they, yeah, yeah, they're yeah. non-existent, but they do have these properties. And Russell said, well, that's going to get you a contradiction um, because uh, something round, something can't be round and square, that, that, that would be a contradiction. And then I think Meinong's response was meant to be that the law of contradiction only applies to... Um, existing things non-existent yeah that's a really interesting move there so but but what people say is yes that russell didn't understand minor but anyway it it shows how there can be a even if it involves misunderstanding it shows an interesting way in which a debate about non-existent can uh, could develop yeah so in distinction to um McX and, and Wyman, or Mc, uh, McTaggart and, and Minong. Uh, what was what was Quine's uh, view in on um, what there is? Well, um, as far as I can see, um, Quine's view in that article, which I reread um, and had very surprising response to, yeah. is based on a mistake. Hmm. Um, and um, so, the, the thing he most wanted to claim was that. Uh, <coughs> Uh, I'm just going to um, check that. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing he most wanted to claim was this, and I'll I'll just read it to you, uh, that um, people can't really disagree about ontological matters. And Quine puts it this way, I cannot admit that there are some things which McX countenances, and I do not. Or in admitting that there are such things, I should be contradicting my own rejection of them. So that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. But what Quine hasn't told us is why he thinks he has to express his disagreement with Macbeth in that way, because it could just be much more straightforward. 
McX thinks there are Fs, which is, but I don't. Yeah. I deny it. So the way he put it was, there are things which McX believes exist, but which I don't. That's the contradiction, because mm -hmm. then you're saying there are things concerning which McX has the view that they exist when they don't. That is a contradiction. Yeah. But of course, you don't have to put the disagreement like that. You can just put it quite simply. McX thinks there are issues. I don't. Yeah. And yeah. Got that. The, the article, to me, rather loses it. I have to say, I was sort of disappointed. I wondered if I'd missed something because I've certainly read it many times mm. and I hadn't experienced that sense of disappointment, which I got. Yeah, that is. When I reread it. That's so. That's so fascinating, and, and such a, a testimony, a testament to the idea that we should reread things, uh, yes. especially influential works that we should read them again, and again, as our own thought has progressed, as yours has re writing you know, several books about these types of things to go back and and see that probably pretty jarring too. Would beforehand would you have said that you would you would find yourself you know in, in uh, following Quine in his position? Well, I'd always been impressed, you know, particularly by Word and Object. It was Word and Object came out in my last year as an undergraduate, and ah. spent most of that, most of my preparation for the for my finals was uh, reading Word and Object. And wow! Was... Wow! Uh, well, uh, Mark, I wonder if, um, I, in my mind, I see fiction and fictionalism kind of blossoming into thinking about things. Um, and I, and I wonder, I went back and, and looked at thinking about things again. And I wonder if, if the display theory, if this just totally helps us out here, that representations, you know, are what we think with, not, uh, what we think about their concepts and concepts are like uh, abilities. And so we can have this concept of a, of a non-existent without quantifying over that non-existent into existence. Is that, is that right? Yeah. That sounds good. Okay. Well, that's great. Yeah, display theory is, is help, super helpful. Yes. Um, well, I hope so. So it's meant, So it actually it takes off, as I think I say in the book, it takes off from an observation of, of Davidson's where he's, um, <clears throat> he quotes an anecdote relating to Oscar Wilde in which Wilde is supposed to have said, I wish I had said that. Yeah. And unpleasant companion says, you will, Oscar, you will. Davidson's interest in the anecdote is that you can use the word that to refer to what someone said. And so uh, Davidson has this really rather striking thought that the attributions of indirect speech, when you say, he said that today is Wednesday, that the that in he said that today is Wednesday can be understood just like the that in I wish you I wish I had said that, namely as a demonstrative, something that refers forward to what follows it. And um, so although those details don't seem fantastically <laughs> compelling, the basic idea seems to be right, because what you're doing in the words, if you say, some, he said that today is Wednesday, you're not committing yourself to today being Wednesday. What you're doing is, as I put it, putting on display the thought that today is Wednesday. And you're saying that you're, the person you're talking about is related to it by having asserted that thought. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was really the beginning of 
display theory. And it does seem a good way of trying to do justice to this, um, these indirect descriptions of speech or yeah. thought or belief or hope or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. And again, I, I need to um, continue thinking about this and, and reread and, and reread your stuff. Uh, I especially like that it, it blossomed out of, of Davidson. Is that on, on saying that? Is that the name of that? Yes, it's what he calls the paratactic analysis of indirect speech. That's right. Paratactic is meant to suggest that he's breaking what looks like a single sentence. Galileo said that the earth moves, is his example, mm-hmm. in two parts. Galileo said that, full stop. And the earth moves. And he has another wonderful joke in the, in the article. He says that um, um, the conventional view is right, except for one small point. And the point is the point that comes after the word that in a proper representation of Galileo said that the earth moves. <laughs> full stop after the that to show yeah. we've actually got two separate parts. And one is one part is being asserted. But the other part isn't. It's just being. I can't remember how he puts it, but it's just displayed. Is the way I. Is it like like reported speech or something? Yeah. No, this is an analysis of reported speech. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what he says is the. Um, so he had this notion of logical form, according to which the logical form of a sentence could often be very different from the surface form, the way it actually appears. But in this case, he said. The logical form just is the surface point form apart from one small point. Yeah. Just the missing full stop. Yeah. Man, language is so wild. And and I, I, I've really, uh, I used to kind of begrudge language, uh, philosophy of language, and then I started getting into Davidson and then into more of your work. And it's so fascinating, especially when we can start thinking about crazy stuff like fictional characters. Uh, some people might say, you know, that this is so trivial or, or pedantic or whatever, but it's so fascinating to me. I think this is like the work of, of good philosophy in, in saying, how can we say that um, Sherlock Holmes was a detective? How can we think that? I think that's fantastic. Um, so just to, to, as we wrap up here, you believe that fictional characters um, are non-existent, but uh, there are, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll let you say for yourself. Do you believe in well, no, you did say you believe in abstracta, but it's not Platonic abstracta. Yeah, it's created. Fictions are created. They are abstract things, but they have beginnings in time. Fictions are. And and fictional characters are non-existence. Um, well, there aren't any, yes. I mean, calling them, no, I don't think I like the word non-existent. Okay. That sounds as if it's um, attributing a property to something, and nothing yeah. has the property of being non-existent. Right. Okay. But anyway, there aren't any, I mean, let's put it this way. In fictions, there are characters, tons and tons and tons of them. Outside fiction, there aren't any. These characters are confined, unfortunately, for them, perhaps. They are confined, maybe fortunately, given the way the world is going. But they're confined to their fictions. They can't escape. Okay, okay. Well, that's fantastic. We, we've covered so much and you helped me think through uh, a ton. I have to listen back to this to, to rehash and, and make sure I'm, I'm metabolizing all this stuff. But uh, Mark, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast and for helping me think through all this really tough stuff, but which turns out to be simple 
yet still complex. Well, thank you, Parker. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Well, uh, we could do this some more. Uh, Lord willing, uh, we, we will in the future, but that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.